Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have found the right show. Huge shout out to some new members of the FOA community this week, Cassie Koch and Kathleen McGill. If you want to join them and me and some other really cool people, head over to patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Now, usually on this show, I don't like to spend too much time on a guest's background. I'll usually summarize it in a few short sentences, and then I drop you right into the conversation. If you've heard previous episodes, you know this. Today's episode, though, is different, and with good reason. We're going to spend probably the first 10 or 15 minutes or so talking about our guest's background in ag tech. And that's because our guest is Craig Rupp. Now, before Craig founded his current company, Sabanto, to bring automation to agriculture, he was with the Climate Corp after selling them his previous company, 640 Labs. Now, by many measures, the Climate Corp is the most successful ag tech company in at least the past decade. I mean, not only is it the industry's only billion-dollar exit from a startup when it sold to Monsanto, but its FieldView platform is one of the few technologies that has reached widespread adoption on commercial farms, at least here in North America. The success of FieldView is due in large part to the FieldView Drive, which automates the collection of data from farm machinery and streams that data to the cloud where it can be accessed, organized, and analyzed. Now, our guest today built that drive. Craig Rupp co-founded a company called 640 Labs with his friend Corbett Cool. Side note here, Corbett has gone on to found a company called Tillable, which is another ag tech startup many of you will have heard of. One more side note, I hope someday we can maybe do an episode on the show of Climate Corp alum that are all doing interesting things in ag tech because there's a lot of them. It's sort of the uh, PayPal of ag in that way. But of course, I digress here. So Craig Rupp co-founded 640 Labs to find a way to pull data from farm machinery into the cloud and display that data on a smartphone or iPad. Now, Climate purchased 640 Labs in 2014, and as I just told you, it has become since the FieldView Drive. Craig grew up on a farm in northwest Iowa, spent his early career as an engineer at Motorola then worked at John Deere for a time before building and selling his first company, Alliance Technologies Group. The first part of today's episode will be about Craig's journey at 640 Labs, and the second half will be all about his current venture, which is super interesting, called Sabanto. Sabanto is a farming-as-a-service company that uses autonomous farm equipment. So there's plenty of interesting stuff to dig into here uh, about the future of automation robotics in agriculture. As we jump in here, I'm going to warn you that some of the terms in the first part of this conversation are a little bit technical, but stick with it. And if you have to, pause and Google. But I was just too wrapped up in the story to define them along the way for you as we were in the conversation. All right, I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Craig is working with Radio Frequency Technology for National Instruments, who had just acquired his first company. And this is where he starts to formulate the ideas for what will soon become 640 Labs. Alliance Technologies Group was acquired by National Instruments. And then I started working hand in hand with a lot of big RF companies. 
BlackBerry, Nokia, LG, Samsung, and Apple in particular. And I was working with Apple on their iPad. And this green star display, you know, what I developed for Deer, I saw this little iPad and, you know, what it costs. The graphics, you know, they use these for gaming. It had incredible amounts of memory, power supply, uh, battery powered, connectivity, LTE, or at the time you could get uh, cellular connectivity, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. And it just all came back to me that, you know, why aren't farmers using this? And then, so a friend of mine, Corbett Cool, he and I would snowmobile together every year. And we started starting companies and we started a data company down in the panhandle of Oklahoma serving oil rigs. You know, it took me about two years and I said, you know, the next thing we do is we should do something in agriculture and something with an iPad because, you know, these displays they use in agriculture, I just thought that they should be using an iPad. And so we decided that, okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to you know, do all the mapping and, and show the agronomic data on an iPad. And then we need a connection from the tractor to the iPad. And my brother, who still farms, bought a, an 8R and I was just looking at it. He was showing me it. And I saw that ISO J1979 port on the tractor. And I thought, huh, I know what's on that port. All the CAN messages on the implement bus, the vehicle bus, all the information, uh, the agronomic information, the engine information, everything about the machine is on that bus. So what I need to do is I need to somehow get that information into the iPad. And that's really where the beginning of the 640 drive now is called the FieldView drive. That's where that came from. You know, I think a lot of people who use FieldView, this is obvious to them now, but it wouldn't have been obvious at the time that that was more than just a difference in display. Like, what did you see it becoming at that time? You know, I'll be honest with you, at the time, we had lofty goals. We wanted to replace the 2630 with an iPad. So we wanted to do everything at, everything at 2630 did. Our goal was to completely replace with an iPad. And then meanwhile, we were reverse engineering all the canned messages on tractors, you know, Deer, CNH, Agco, whatever piece of equipment we could get our hands on, albeit a combine, a tractor, uh, an applicator. We were hard at it, reverse engineering and getting that data up into the iPad. And what were the problems that farmers were having at the time with the current displays? What was an iPad solving for them? Well, first and foremost, it was we thought it was a platform that was inexpensive, which it is, you know, all things considered. It was more than just a monitor for agronomic data. You can read your email, you can watch Netflix, you know, you can text on it. So it provided a platform that farmers could use it in various ways above and beyond just, you know, a monitor in their tractor. And what year was this that you first kind of went headfirst into this? Uh, about 2012. Yeah, I remember October 2012, jumping in my car on the weekends. I would head over to my brother's, you know, with can sniffing uh, equipment. And, uh, you know, we would raise the planter, lower the planter. We would uh, power up the planter. The entire time we were sniffing the CAN bus, trying to uh, reverse engineer the messages. So it's 2012 and you're tinkering, hacking uh, your brother's tractor to get an iPad to work 
for his display and for his data. How did that lead to thinking this is a business that people are going to want to pay for this? Some of the things we were doing were unique in that we were storing the data all in the cloud. Most farmers at that time, they would run around with these little memory sticks, moving data from their tractor onto their computer. And we were kind of unique because once I got that data from the CAN bus into the iPad, then with Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, or even uh, um, cellular connection, up it went into the cloud. And then now I have all this data sitting up in the cloud, and we can do analytics on it, and then we could, you know, remotely or over a web interface, we could show the farmer his data. That is pretty cool. And so was that when the light bulb went off for farmers that you were working with? Like, oh, I don't have to carry this memory stick around. It's all there. Or what really convinced people that this was something new and this was something unique? I think it was that fact that all the data is sitting up in the cloud. I don't have to worry about it. It's seamless. There's no touch points. It's I plug this device into my tractor. I have my iPad there. All the data was transferred to that iPad. Eventually, it got up into the cloud air free. And so in, in 2013, Monsanto buys climate. What did you think about that at the time? Uh, it kind of floored me, to be honest with you. I'm like, oh, my God, they're spending a billion dollars. They bought climate. And then, you know, just prior to that, they bought precision planting. So I, I was like, oh, my God, you know, these are some big acquisitions. And then it, it finally dawned on me that there's quite a lot of uh, interest in data analytics, agriculture data. I mean, it was apparent to me that there's something here and there's something interesting that that is going on in the industry. And at that time, did you think that uh, perhaps, you know, you might be an acquisition target? Uh, no, no. You know, I, I viewed it as, you know, the Nest or when the Nest uh, thermostat uh, was coming up, you know, it was kind of an interesting company in that they're really kind of a data analytics company, but they have this little device, the Nest thermostat. And I kind of pictured ourselves as that, you know, we have this little drive that would collect data, very, very cost effective way of collecting this data. You didn't have to go out and buy a, a four or $5,000, you know, monitor. I mean, this was, we're piggybacking off of the modems in, in cell phones and even uh, iPads. And, you know, it's just basically a CAN transceiver and a Bluetooth uh, transceiver, and there we go. Looking back, you know, some of the, the, the most simplest decisions we made that kind of made sense, you know, I was, I was amazed at how it, I guess, the effect of some of those simple decisions were. Like, you know, we, we sat down and said, okay, it's got to be something that, you know, we don't have to call a technician to install. We don't have to call a technician to, uh, you know, make sure the data is getting up into the cloud. And so this this little device plugs into that port, and then you have to pair your Bluetooth, and then you're done. And, and that was really a good selling point. And I think uh, the people at Monsanto and Climate uh, saw that. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad we made that decision at the time. <laughs> And as you were trying to kind of, uh, you know, build that business and get more customers, were you having to sort of sell farmers on the importance of, of their data or kind of what was the hang up there? You know, it's funny is the first five customers that we had were all my relatives. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in a fairly large, uh, you know, extended family 
in Northwest Iowa. So all my uncles and aunts and cousins, a lot of them farm. So it was a pretty easy sell to, hey, I'm doing this. Would you be interested in that? And us collecting data. And they were fine with that. And then from there, we started getting ourselves into some rather large growers and we were catering our product offering to, you know, some of the pain points of these larger farmers that they had. That makes sense. So eventually climate did come calling and, you know, for an acquisition, I guess, I don't know how much we can talk about or not, but I'm kind of curious why John Deere didn't buy you instead of climate. You know, Deere's a large company and they have product plans. You know, they were working diligently on that. You know, I don't know internally as to what the thoughts were at Deer, but, you know, I knew that climate, they were all into data analytics. And if you want to play a part in data analytics, you got to have access to data. And they saw us as, look at what this little company did. They created this little device. You know, it's painless to install it and pair your phone up or your iPad. And so this is quite an interesting solution, which would help us gather more data for our data analytics. Well, on the show, we talk a lot about sort of ag tech adoption or lack thereof. And, you know, as I think back to the past decade, I can't think of anything that's actually achieved widespread adoption more than than Climate Field View, which it sounds like this 640 drive, which became the Field View drive, had a big part to play. And would you agree with that assessment? I would. I mean, what was interesting about the drive is... You know, we were on Agco Case, or CNH, and Deer. We were on Haggy. We were on Miller. We were on all this, you know, variety of colored implements and vehicles. Not all farmers have the same color of fleet, and they may have a, a CNH tractor pulling a Deer planter, and it just so happened that that little device uh, works with both of them. I think that really helped the adoption rate. All right. Well, and then you stayed on with Climate for a while, right? After that? Yes. We were acquired December of 2014, and I left in uh, July of 2018. And when you left Climate, did you know you were going to start Sabanto? No. Believe it or not, so, so I get teased a lot of this. I was chipping away at my PhD and I thought, you know, I'm going to go back and do a semester as a full-time PhD student. So I moved back to Ames. I'd gotten my uh, undergraduate at IIT in Chicago. And then I went back to Iowa State and continued with my PhD. And while I was there, I saw something shiny and I decided that, hey, um, I wanted to do something with autonomy and agriculture. So in October of 2018, I founded Sabanto. So you had to have, I mean, you're an entrepreneurial guy. You've got decades of kind of entrepreneurial endeavors. You had to have a ton of of ideas along the line. What was it about this idea uh, versus the others that that I'm sure you've kind of kicked around that said, no, this is this is what I need to dedicate this part of my life to? Over the four years that I worked at Climate, I, I would get to meet a lot of farmers and, and they've become friends and they're really, really interesting people. And one of the problems that they always complained about was labor and the lack of labor in agriculture. And while I was at Climate, I sat through a lot of presentations of people, you know, the oracles looking into the future of what 
farming is going to look like. And autonomy was always on the on the top of the list that we're going to start seeing machines that are running autonomously in the field. And, you know, there are going to be people tendering them or uh, they're going through a web interface. They're going to be looking at, you know, the status of, of the tractor and the implement. And I, you know, in October of 2018, I decided I'm going to do something about that. And I thought that, you know, I, I could assemble a team and pull this off. And I, I wanted to I wanted to do something unique. And I knew that if I work directly with farmers and provide a service that I think I could pull this off. As you started down that journey, what was sort of step one? I, I mean, you mentioned assembling a team, but like, how did you look at the problem? The problem of labor and agriculture, you know, is obviously you know, far different from people trying to help with cherries in Washington or lettuce in Arizona or more of your Northwest Iowa row crops. You know, how did you start to narrow down your focus for where Sabanto might go? Well, first and foremost, I, you know, I could tell you uh, a lot about corn and soybeans and just rural crop agriculture in the Midwest here. You know, I have been out to California and been to some of the, the fresh crop fields and saw the processes, but that's really not my forte. So I don't think I could, uh, number one, geographically, it's a long way away. Whereas, you know, row crop agriculture, I could drive five miles and, you know, find a farmer that I could work with. So there's something about being geographically centered in, you know, the Midwest and having row crop agriculture everywhere, you know, ubiquitous, it's everywhere, it's around you. So in 2018, you know, I decided, well, what can we do, you know, audacious and go out and start doing this? And so what what I decided is in the spring of 2019, we're going to go out and autonomously plant um, throughout the Midwest. So I uh, I leased a JCB 4220 uh, JCB tractor. And the only reason we selected that tractor was it was 102 inches wide. And I could put it on a drop deck trailer without a wide load. And then I went out and bought uh, an 18 row, 20 inch, full up precision planting, top of the line Harvest International planter full up precision seed meters downforce and so i'm going to show up this isn't going to be uh just a your your run-of-the-mill planter it was going to be a high performance high compatible or capability planter and then i went and got a cdl license because someone's going to have to drive this truck uh across the u.s and uh so we went out and we started in Sac City, Iowa, and we started planting autonomously. Spent the entire winter writing the software, at least getting something to work. Yeah, you know, where we were back then, where we are today is night and day. But I wanted to go out and learn, you know, what are some of the hurdles, what are some of the constraints, and how crazy of an idea is this? And so in the spring of 2019, we went out and uh, planted throughout uh, in Iowa, Nebraska, Minnesota, Indiana, and Illinois. What was that call to the the farmers like, the pitch of like, hey, I'm going to come out and plant autonomously? They were lined up. They they were like, I want to be a part of this. This sounds cool. I want to see it. I have uh, soybean acres. So we did we did plant soybeans because for a number of reasons. Number one, we don't have to mess with um, starter fertilizer. 
you know, it's crazy enough to go out and autonomously plant. It's even crazier if we have to deal with, uh, you know, I didn't want to boil the ocean. Second thing is farmers are really particular about their corn planting. And while they're planting their corn, you know, every last one of them are like, you can do as many beans, you know, plant as many acres of soybeans as you want. And so, so that is the reason why we did, uh, we did soybeans. What was their feedback in that first, you know, I know you said the product's way different now, but uh, what was their feedback that first year? Um, It was positive. You know, at the end of the year, I called the farmers that we planted for and we were as good, if not better than their present capabilities. And how about your own kind of self-reflection? What needed to change in the next iteration of the product? Because, I mean, it sounds like it happened pretty quick. You spent the winter writing code. You're in the spring out there planting soybeans. So in your own mind, you know, what was next as far as the iterative cycle to, to get this closer to commercialization? Well, at the time, we were autonomous, but we had to watch it very intently you know, we didn't have the ability to detect anomalies, uh, so we were we were monitoring this twenty four seven while it was out. It it wasn't like, for example, you know, and I'll give you one. If something happened to a row, let's say we ran out of seed, we would have to manually stop it. We didn't have the software to stop. You know, one of the rows is not planting; it ran out of seed. So it was more of a proof of concept. What are we going to learn? And we had navigation and implement control, you know, raise and lower, but there were a lot of, I mean, it was really, really alpha software. This year in 2020, we went out uh, planting uh, soybeans again in the spring and, and we got much, much better than, than 2019. And then when we came back from planting, you know, we're getting inundated with a lot of organic growers, you know, hey, can you come out and rotary hoe our uh, fields? You know, I have a labor problem. Um, it's pretty easy. And we had the horsepower to do it. So we started doing that. And and then we started doing cultivating. And then now we're doing tillage. And we're getting better and better. I mean, over the last month, I, I was just amazed as to how you know, mature our software is and how hands-off we have become. You know, the little tractor that we use is very dependable. And, uh, you know, we have our software is very mature in that we can detect anomalies and then notify our engineering staff that, hey, there's a problem. You know, we lost RTK on this system. And then it, it continues. Yeah. And so that's the business model, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's tractors as a service, autonomous tractors as a service. Is that right? That is correct. Mm-hmm. And other than planting, and you mentioned kind of rotary hoe, is, are there other activities you can do as well autonomously? Um, so we can, you know, obviously tine weed. We did a lot of cultivation uh, over in, in Iowa and uh, tillage. Uh, we've been going hot and heavy the past uh, one month doing tillage. This little tractor is probably the hardest working 90 horsepower tractor in probably the U.S. It went 39 hours straight, nonstop. That's incredible. From a a user standpoint, I mean, obviously the autonomy is nice from a labor standpoint, but from a a customer standpoint, in this case, you know, they just want the, the action done. They don't care if somebody's sitting on the tractor or not sitting on the tractor. And so is your competitive advantage that you're able to do it cheaper because of labor? 
you know, I don't think we're doing cheaper because of labor. It's 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 more along the lines of like consider the farmer that we're performing tillage for. The people he has on staff, they have CDL licenses. And his job right now, number job number one is to get the get the crops out of the field. And he wants as many truck drivers as he possibly can so he can run longer hours. And so while we're performing as tillage, he's taken his staff that, that he dedicated to tillage and they're driving trucks, they're driving combines, they're running grain carts. We're an extension of his uh, of his facilities or his operations. And that's that's the way we're viewed. We happen to be doing it autonomously. Great. Hmm. As you think about if, if you had just set up like a farming as a service company and not worried about the autonomy part of it at all, what's the importance of this being autonomous as opposed to like if you get a call from someone in Indiana tomorrow and they, you know, they want you to come till ahead of weather, you know, you've got to send someone out to, to, to bring the, the tractor out there anyway, right? So what's the difference if that guy was sitting on the tractor or not sitting on the tractor? Okay, for starters, if a guy from Indiana called us right now and said, "Hey, we want to, uh, we want you to come out and perform tillage," so I would have to get a drop deck trailer, and probably two of them: one to haul the tractor and one to haul the uh, the implement. Right, so that'd be very costly. Where am I going to find that guy? What is he going to do? He's going to have to haul it back as well. So, I mean, that, that's a big problem for us. So, as it stands right now, and we did that actually, rotary hoeing. We throw it on, you know, all our equipment can be hauled on a, with a three-quarter ton truck. So I can I could go down to that guy's field, drop off one of these little rigs, and off it goes. Okay. Why do you think autonomous tractors have not caught on earlier? Is it a tech, a tech constraint, or is there something else that's kind of barriers to this becoming more um, ubiquitous? I think, and and one of the reasons why I went out and I wanted to do this was, I think autonomy is going to play a part in agriculture. I firmly believe that. I think part of the problem is, I think everyone's waiting around to see what the industry brings them. You know, and and it's like the electric, you know, the electric car, electric vehicle, right? You know, I think everyone is waiting. Well, let's see what General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler do. And then all of a sudden, here's this this crazy guy, uh, Elon Musk. He's like, I'm going to create an electric car like you've never seen before. And I wanted to be that person. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to bring autonomy into agriculture. And I wanted to completely change the landscape. What's next as far as uh, Sabanto's growth goes? You know, what's kind of the next milestone you're looking for? Obviously, we're uh, we're wrapping up the 2020 season uh, in most places, and uh, as you look to the kind of 2021 season, what's uh, what's going to look different a year from now if we were having this conversation in your mind? You're going to see more equipment and more acres and more locations. That is my goal. I want to partner with uh, some large farmers and introduce autonomy into their operations. For the the customer interaction, how that looks, if you have a customer that wants your equipment out there, do you kind of drop it off with the customer and then they use it around their fields as they see fit? Or are you actually managing it 
if they say, hey, here are the coordinates for the field. I need this field uh, rotary hoed, you know, go take care of it. And Sabanto does everything. Or is it, hey, I need a couple autonomous tractors, you know, bring them over. How does that part look? So right now uh, we're working with the growers and we're performing their field operations. We deploy the unit and we monitor the unit and we maintain the unit. And that's really how we're operating at this point in time. Okay. And I know your tractors are smaller, not the biggest tractors out there. What is your opinion? You know, you you have some people saying small tractors are the future, the smaller, you know, almost the smaller, the better type of thing. And then other, you know, others saying, well, the history would indicate otherwise the tractor has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over time. You know, where do you stand on that? Okay. So it's obvious where I stand on that, but uh, um, I think we peaked in horsepower. And I think if you if you look at, you know, where we're at today, 500 plus horsepower tractors, you know, 24, 36, 48 row planters, how, how did we get to where we're at today? And it's apparent to me that aside from Department of Transportation's dot rules as to, you know, the weight and size of the equipment, the equipment today has been designed around covering as many acres as you possibly can with an operator at the expense of compaction, cost, expense. <laughs> and one of the problems that, you know, as a startup, and I've always said this, that the uh, scarcity of resources drives innovation. I, as a startup, I can't go out and buy half million dollar tractors. I, I don't have the capital to do that. But I can go out and lease these <laughs> these small tractors. And guess what? I can pull them with a, with a three-quarter ton truck and I can deploy them. That's not to say that I can't scale horsepower. One of the advantages of going with these smaller tractors is I have software guys who they understand that a person's going to be monitoring these remotely and maintaining them is something, you know, if, the, if any anomalies detected, they jump on and they say, well, what happened? You know, um, you know, we lost RTK, you know, continue. And they understand that they have to monitor multiple machines in multiple fields across multiple states. And it's more of a, I can challenge the software guys and they can implement it. And if I want to go, like right now I have 60 and 90 horsepower tractors. If I want to go up to 200 horsepower tractors and instead of a, an eight foot, a, a 20 foot bar, it's a very easy software change for the engineers to switch. And so I have great equipment guys, and this is where I'm at right now. And I'm not foreign to go into larger horsepower, you know, to right size it for certain applications. Yeah. So, so what was the thought process, uh, you know, kind of on that note of going the service route rather than the product route, where you just kind of sell a product that allows farmers to make their tractors autonomous? So when we started out, um, a lot of farmers had requested that, hey, I have a MT-765 tractor. I want you to put your technology on this tractor. And the problem is, is, okay, this guy's got a, you know, he's running a Cat Challenger. This other guy's running, you know, eight hours or seven hours. And this guy's running, you know, Magnums and Steigers. You know, it got confusing for me. And, and I'm like, this is not going to work if I try to be everything to end everyone. Why is a service? Because I knew that 
you know, there's going to be a lot of hurdles that we had to jump over. And I wanted to make sure our engineers at this point in time, they understand them. And so when we went out in the spring, for example, I had seven guys on the side of the field, software guys, my equipment guys, my hardware guys, mechanical engineers, egg engineers. And we were all, you know, working as a team that, hey, the you know, this is happening, you know, how can we do, what can we do to avoid this? And, you know, I just can't at that point in time, I can't hand this over to a farmer and have him run it. But I knew that as a service company and what I could do is start taking over, you know, some of his field operations, I knew I could easily do that. Yeah. I mean, the, as a service model makes a ton of sense for me. I've, I, you know, I talked to a, a guy in California who was trying to sell some high dollar equipment for specialty crops in California. And he is having such a hard time. He just bought a couple of himself st- and started offering as a service. And that's his business now. My question with that is, how do you keep yourself from getting sort of commoditized where it's just like, I sell, you know, getting your field tilled and a farmer just looks at it as the cheapest way to get my field tilled. You know, that's where I'm going to go. Well, I, I mean, so the one thing that I think we, uh, an advantage we have is, uh, and if you look at our system, we squeeze the CapEx and OpEx out of the system. You know, I'm not saying we're done, but, you know, I, I, I've gone with lower cost tractors and lower cost implements. And, you know, we monitor our, you know, our fuel rates, how we're performing this task and what can we do to reduce the, uh, the amount of fuel usage, go to a higher gear, lower RPM. You know, there's, there's various things that we can do to reduce that cost. Okay, great. Anything else that you feel like we didn't get to that you were hoping to uh, at least talk about with Sabanto or anything else? I know we kind of ran the gamut here a little bit. You know, I I guess the other thing I'd like to say is, you know, when I started this, I I made a list of people who I think could help me pull this off. And I went back to Chicago and, you know, I've got, you know, currently we have a team of uh, about nine people and and some are contracting, but all of them, it was kind of interesting, the team I put together, all of them had experience in 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 one way or another with agriculture three of us are farm boys we grew up at a farm corn soybeans hogs cattle you name it and then the other you know members of my crew they're they're software engineers they're hardware engineers but they've been in agriculture and and i give the perfect example like you take one of my software guys and you say hey we're going to be planting soybeans thirty thousand seeds per acre you know, in this field, they would know that, wait a minute, nobody plants 30,000 seeds per acre for soybeans in the Midwest. There's something wrong. So there's an advantage of having that experience. And I've taken them to the next level in that, you know, a lot of them, you know, they all know how to drive a tractor now. They all know how to tie a load down. They all, you know, nothing is beneath them. And I'm trying to build a culture in a company that, you know, you're an egg and you're, you're, you're going to know how to drive a tractor. You're going to know, you know, the ins and outs of cultivation and planting. And it's been a lot of fun over the last, you know, two years watching them uh, grow. Thank you very much to Craig Rupp for being on the show. 
for an ag tech nerd like myself. That was sure fun. And thanks also to Pat Dumstorff for the introduction to Craig. Thank you so much, Pat, for making this happen. To learn more about Sabanto, Craig recommends following them on Twitter, where they're at Sabanto Ag. That's S-A-B-A-N-T-O Ag. I highly recommend it just for the videos, if nothing else. It's pretty cool. And speaking of Climate Corp, in a couple of weeks, their chief product officer, Ranjita Singh, will be joining me on the show to talk about product strategy and farm data. Make sure you're subscribed and stay tuned for that one. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.